you'd like to turn to John chapter 6, we will be. Are you done yet? This is the server at our table because a tradition for a few years with my father around my birthday was we would go to this restaurant, a seafood restaurant, and it was during the season of all-you-can-eat shrimp. And so the server is at the table asking this question, are you done yet? They're sneaky. Uh, They try to fill you up and they try to distract you with nonsense like noodles, like who wants pasta, french fries, and these cheesy biscuits that possibly are delivered straight from heaven. But I will not be sidelined. I know what I've come here for. So listen, server, with all due respect, I know that I would have to eat roughly 200 pounds of shrimp to pull this off, but if I do not successfully leave here with iodine poisoning, I have failed. So no, I am not done yet. And yes, I would like some more. Um, That's just how that goes, because I have no self-control. But did you know uh, that some foods are actually designed to make you crave even more of them? Like, that's pretty wild. And I'm not saying, like, um, you know, the, like, we just made this so delicious that you're going to want more and more of it, which is synonymous with terrible for you. Um, but I mean, like, there's actual R&D, like, research and development that goes into the production of some foods to make you crave more and more of that. Um, it's, it's wild. There's a food scientist, Stephen Witherly, who um, is quite notorious for this, but he actually broke down the formula for a very popular chip brand that we will not name. Um, but he points out some things like um, these chips have a 50% fat ratio that creates that melt-in-your-mouth experience. Um, this is called a vanishing caloric density, and it actually tricks our brain into feeling like it's full later and not now. So you think you need more. Uh, the blend of ingredients is combined in the finest grinding technique, causing it to fill the mouth every nook and cranny. And that makes you salivate more, which triggers your expectation of more food. Uh, additionally, lactic and citric acid, along with buttermilk, also help increase the flow of saliva, again triggering I should be eating more. Um, garlic and umame-type flavor, if you don't know what that is, reference Pastor Scott's message, Um, But this is a long hang time flavor that they include. Salt is combined at a, I don't don't even know the right words for this, but it's combined somehow with different ingredients um, that will actually give you that burst of flavor that we experience when we take a bite. Um, The finely tuned combination of flavors does not allow any one ingredient to stand out. And so it becomes this mysterious thing to where the flavor is forgetful and yet desirable and increases our desire to taste more and more of it again. The fine powder left on your fingers is even more of a trick because it's now just concentrated flavor and yet no mass to it. And so, again, you think you're done, you lick your fingers, and suddenly you're like, I want more. It's amazing. (laughs) Uh, The artificial colors, being two artificial yellows and one artificial red, are bright, which consumers have been shown in research to be more attracted to. Moral of the story is we stand no chance. (laughs) We stand no chance. A chip designed to never leave you satisfied, but to hook you with the hope of satisfaction. And now is it chips or is it life? We'll never leave you satisfied, but we'll hook you with the hope of full satisfaction. And so we start with the question, are you satisfied? And can you be satisfied? We're in pursuit of satisfaction, but can we actually be satisfied? And so we look now in John chapter 6. The start of this chapter starts a new story as we continue in this trek through the gospel according to John. So John chapter 6 and verse 1, it says this, After this, Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A huge crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was performing by healing the sick. 
Jesus went up a mountain and sat down there with his disciples. Now the Passover, a Jewish festival, was near. And so have, have we come to this point now? There's a massive crowd following Jesus. He's done these incredible signs. You remember he turned water into wine at a wedding. Um, Pastor Tim took us beautifully through these healings last week where there's two men in their brokenness who come to Jesus and they respond very differently. But Jesus heals both of them. Jesus is performing miracles. He's performing these signs and the crowds are catching on. There's something to this man. There's something going on here. And so they're pressing into that. They're literally trying to stay close to Jesus. A crowd is following him. He comes up, sits on a mountain, so he's kind of got the advantage. He can speak to them. He can teach them. They're all here gathered around, and the time is near the Jewish festival of Passover. And so this tells us a lot. Crowd is here. Passover is here. And so very quick summary. If you don't know what Passover is, this is an annual observance. And so this is when an angel of death or destruction literally would pass over the Israelites if they had the blood of a lamb on the doorposts. And so this is when they're back, you're going hundreds to thousands of years back in their history. Um, they have this, this young man who's sold by his brothers into slavery. He ends up in Egypt and he goes from being in prison as a slave to suddenly he's second in command. He's right under Pharaoh himself. And so this actually was in God's sovereignty to bring the Jewish people, this family that would become an entire nation, to bring them to Egypt so that they would be able to live through a famine. And so the family has come there and they start to flourish. They're multiplying and it gets to the point generations later where there are millions of them. There's a ton of them and they're just prospering. God's blessing is clearly on them. And so a Pharaoh who does not know Joseph, who helped lead them in there, he's in power and he just sees a threat. And so he starts to oppress them. They're now slaves in Egypt. And so for 400 years, they're in Egypt and they're enslaved. They're just forced to work build things, do all these construction projects that we often see as these great wonders of the world and so forth. And so the Jews are here suffering and God hears them and he calls them out of that. He does that through his servant Moses, who, you know, he shows up and leads the Exodus. Um, but this happens because Pharaoh is confronted by Moses who tells him, hey, we need to leave and judgment is coming. If not, he have the 10 plagues, the final plague, or the final judgment that finally tells Pharaoh, really let him go as the firstborn of every household is going to die. On this set night, the Israelites, the Jews, the Hebrew people, they're told, this is what you're going to do. You're going to make some bread, but you're going to do it in a way that it's not going to rise because you're going to do this quick. And you're going to eat clothed with your sandals on, your staff ready, like ready to go. We're going to eat this meal. It's going to be called the Passover because if you put the blood of a sacrificed lamb over your doorway, then the angel of death who would strike the firstborn is going to literally pass over your house and not execute judgment. And so in this night, the firstborn of every household that does not have the blood on the door is killed. And finally, Pharaoh's like, get out! And so they flee. And the the Jews are taught, you're going to observe this regularly. This is God's salvation. When he would pass over because of a sacrifice, he would pass over this and you would be delivered out of your enslavement. And this, again, is to be our story too. But there to remember this, that even generations later, when they're not literally slaves to Egypt, they're still slaves to sin. And there's this way in which God, through a sacrifice, would pass over and they would not be judged for that. And they would be rescued. They would be drawn out of their enslavement. So this is the festival time that Jesus is doing this. He's on a mountain, he's got a big crowd, and it's this time. So this is the context, what everyone's thinking of in this history, okay? So we continue on, verse five. 
And so when Jesus looked up and noticed a huge crowd coming toward him, he asked Philip, where will we buy bread so that these people can eat? He asked this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. I love those little notes that the gospel writers will put in. Like, Jesus had something up his sleeve there, but you know, let's see it play out. Jesus is going to do something. So Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough for each of them to have just a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? So Jesus has something up his sleeve, kind of positions this, he puts the question out there to try to make a point. He's going to do something here. We know that. We've already been clued into that. But he's asking Philip nearby, hey, Philip, this is one of his disciples. Look at all these people coming. They're going to be hungry. What are they going to eat? And Philip is like, well, Jesus, <laughs> even if we had 200 denarii, it wouldn't be enough to give each of them just a little bit of bread. And 200 denarii, a denarii is the Denarii is the plural form of a denarius. A denarius is one day's wages. And so if we put this into our context today, um, according to U.S. Census Bureau, um, the local mean per capita income is $32,718. So in this context here where we live, that's the equivalent 200 days wages would be $17,927.67. So imagine you pull out your wallet, you got deep pockets, and you're like, we got $17,927.67. And you look around and say, well, that's not going to touch this. The point being, there's a lot of people here. And we don't have enough to feed them. We don't have enough to feed them. And yet, Andrew, my brother-in-law's name is Andrew. I don't know if he's here. We'll call him Andy. Andy shows up and he's like, hey, hey I've had my eye on this kid's lunch all day. <laughs> you all know that guy. Like, you should be focused on what's going on. And he's like, what's for lunch? He's already feeling the hunger, and maybe he's like, yeah, there's not enough food for everybody out here, but I see that kid's lunchbox. <laughs> so out of nowhere, he's like, well, this kid, he's got, he's got a couple fish and some loaves of bread. Hey, stop telling kids' lunches, man. Keep going. Verse 10. And Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, so they sat down. The men numbered about 5,000. Then Jesus took the loaves, and after giving thanks, he distributed to the, them to those who were seated, so also with the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were full, he told his disciples, collect the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they collected them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces from the five barley loaves that were left over by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign he had done, they said, this truly is the prophet who is to come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This is amazing. Massive crowd here. Just huge crowd. Like if you've been to a massive stadium, I'm not talking like Amway Center, I'm talking like Dolphin Stadium, something where you get so many people that it looks like an ocean of people as you're trying to all get in or out. Like it's just a massive crowd. And all these people are here. They're hungry. Jesus has been teaching. We have a problem, guys. They're going to need to eat. Well, <laughs> this is the best we've got. We've got this little boy's lunch. And Jesus is like, let me have it. Blesses it. Starts to distribute it. Everyone has what they want. They eat their fill. Everyone eats. And disciples go, he's like, collect all the leftovers. How many disciples are there? There's 12. They become the 12 apostles minus the change up. They get with Judas. They all collect more than their basket can contain. 
This is amazing what God has done in this moment. Twelve full baskets that started with a little boy's lunch. And now everyone has eaten to their fill. They're fully satisfied. Or so they think. And the disciples, okay, go, go collect all the leftovers. Like, why? Why collect the leftovers? Here's a little trick in scripture. Numbers often have significance. Um, the number 12 is used repeatedly throughout scripture as a reference to the people of God. How many tribes of Israel are there? The 12 tribes. How many apostles? 12. And so 12 shows up over and over. You get into the revelation. That's very important. But if 12 is a reference to the people of God, and here you have Jesus who fills all these people miraculously, does this incredible sign, and then he sends these 12 disciples out, and they go and they collect these baskets, and there's more than they can contain. The point being, there's more than enough for the people of God. God will always provide. There's more than enough. And then look at their conclusion, the people who see this sign, their conclusion, truly, the prophet has come into the world. This is the prophet. And that's capital P prophet, which should stand out to you and make you ask, well, who is this like formal noun prophet, capital P prophet that they're referring to? And this goes back into Deuteronomy chapter 18. Um, this is when Moses, who is known as the prophet, the one who led them out. So remember, we're in the context of Passover. This is in their mind. The one who led them out in the Exodus, out of enslavement, and they come out And as Moses is about to die, this is what Moses says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. And so since Moses, the people of God have been waiting for yet another prophet that is going to be a singular prophet who's somehow going to be very different, like Moses. And yet Moses says in submission to him, you must listen to him. But Moses, you gave us the law, and he's saying somehow this prophet you're going to listen to over this listen to him, and they see the sign and think, this is the prophet who's to come. This is the one. And so, fast forward, we're not going to read it, but Jesus and the disciples, they make their way to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. We're actually going to come back to that next week. But they're on the other side of the lake. Some amazing things have happened during the night, and now we pick up in verse 22. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the other side of the sea saw there had only been one boat. They also saw that Jesus had not boarded the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone off alone. Some boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the crowd saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum looking for Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Truly I tell you, you were looking for me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. The people lost Jesus, but then they found him. But then he called them out. Like, you, you didn't come here because you really believed in the signs, the power behind it. You, you came here because you, you ate your fill yesterday. They gratified some temporary desire for you. Is that really what you want to work for? Something so fleeting? Or do you want to work for something that's going to last forever? And Jesus is calling them out on that. Are we chasing what is fleeting and perishes? Or what lasts and truly satisfies? What are you chasing? Is it something that, just like this bread, ate everything I got, couldn't take another mouthful? And you know what? Tomorrow, I'll be hungry again. 
Are we chasing something that is fleeting and leaves us dissatisfied in the end? Or what will be forever? It'll be eternal and fully satisfying. And Jesus says, he can give you that. That's quite the claim. He says he can give you that. So look at verse 28. Here's the response of the people. What can we do to perform the works of God, they asked. Jesus replied, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one he has sent. What sign then are you going to do so that we may see and believe you, they asked. What are you going to perform? Our ancestors ate the man in the wilderness just as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. We, just like them, have this habit of tying eternal life to these works we must do. Like, where did that come from? Why would they say that? Jesus calls them out and like, you're just so fixated on the here and the now. Don't you want to focus on what's going to matter forever? What's not going to fade away? And they immediately come back and say, well, well what, what work do we need to do? What is the work of God that we should be doing? In fact, what should you be doing? What can you do to prove to us? And again, in context, they're thinking Passover. And so their minds are back to Moses. If this is the prophet, now they're like, well, we want you to prove that you're the capital P prophet. I know yesterday we said you were, but today we're not really sure because you're not feeding us. So what's the deal? What are you going to do? What should I do? What are you going to do? What works, 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 works? They tie so much just like we do. We think somehow that we can be enough, that we can do something. And Jesus cuts it out. He's very clear. This is the work of God. It's believing in him. This is the necessary work. It's just believing in the one who God the Father sent, who is God the Son, believing in him. And even still, they're demanding that he show them some work or sign so that they can believe. The work is belief. Well, you do a work so that I can believe. I need to see it. Did you forget what happened yesterday? This is wild. How? How can you forget that? Well, you know, like Moses, God gave our fathers bread from heaven. Well, no, actually, they say Moses gave our fathers. And Jesus has to correct them. No, 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 no. God gave the bread. God gave the manna which translated into English is kind of like, what? Exclamation point, question mark. What is this? Like they wake up and there's bread on the ground. This is amazing. Jesus corrects them. The father has given the bread. And actually the father has already given them the sign that they're now demanding. The sign was given yesterday and it wasn't actually the bread they ate to their fill. The sign was Jesus himself. It's the one who came from heaven, the bread from heaven. Jesus is the sign. He's the one with the power and they're so fixated on what he has done or what he can do that they miss that it's actually Jesus that their eyes should be fixed on. And they want more. And I have to wonder, like, I know this is true in my life. Is it true in your life that so often we start demanding or waiting for some further sign from God? Like, what are you going to do, God? Show me that you're good for me. Show me that you have my back. Show me that there's a future for me to prosper. When are you going to show up and do this? And we're just demanding, waiting with expectation that God's going to show up and do something miraculous. And I'm not saying that's always wrong. We should be expecting of the Lord. We should wait on the Lord. But if our heart shifts from seeing that all of our hope is in what God will do, instead of looking back and saying, look what he has done that I can see him, that I see him and what he has done. The bread from heaven has come to me. That's where we need to keep our eyes. 
And then we can rightly look forward and say, well, now I'm waiting for you because you've proven yourself. And I believe in you, not just a sign that it's to come. You have shown me. So here, Jesus, as he continues this passage, we're going to read quite a bit here, and I want you to actually put your eyes on this. Um, there's so much here that I would love to unpack, um, but we're going to keep going for the sake of the context of this story. So listen to Jesus' response. Um, first, they respond, and then he'll respond. 34, then they said, Sir, give us this bread always. I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. But as I told you, you've seen me, and yet you do not believe. Everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Therefore, the Jews started complaining about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They were saying, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, stop complaining among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has listened to and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, I tell you, anyone who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the man in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I, give, that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. At that, the Jews argued among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? It's cannibalism. So Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, because my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. It is not like the manna your ancestors ate, and they died. The one who eats this bread will live forever. Jesus has made quite the claim. As he performs this sign, where thousands are fed. It says 5,000 men, and it's particular, it's, it's saying men, which means there's most likely, almost assuredly, women and children. And so what is that real number? So many people. And this little boy's lunch becomes more than they could eat. And they follow him, they find him the next day. <sighs> boy, you're not here. You're not here because you believe. You're here because you ate your fill. Do you really want to work for what's fleeting? Or do you want this to matter? Do you want to work for what's going to last for all of eternity? Yes, what is that work? Well, it's actually just believing in me. Believing in you? Mm. What, what sign are you going to do? How are you going to prove that, Jesus? Show, show us why we should believe. Did you forget what just happened? <laughs> believe in him. 
He is the bread of life. This is the bread of heaven that has come down to us. He says he is the bread of life. As you know, bread can be made from wheat or barley, particularly in this context. Those are the primary things. I know now we, we make it out of many other things. But bread typically made from wheat or barley. And wheat and barley have to be processed to become helpful food for consumption. Actually, particularly with wheat, if you eat more than a few mouthfuls of wheat that has not been processed, you actually get sick. It will jack you up. It needs to be processed to become what is consumable, to become bread. And Jesus claims to be the bread from heaven. So if you don't know how bread is made, you get your wheat or your barley, you have to harvest it and put it into some kind of container and that's when it gets fun because then you just get violent. You just beat it around. This is called threshing. Hit it with sticks. You're just trying to rough it up as much as you can. And then what happens next is you're trying to get the grains out. And we've had a debate with a couple guys. Some people call it berries. Some people call it grains, kernels. I don't even remember all the names that have been given. But what you're trying to do is get out the part that is not the chaff. And so... I'm going to make a big mess here. That actually worked really well. (laughs) Aside from that piece, everything else from that fan, the wind blew away the chaff. And now I just have the part that's going to then go into a millstone and be grinded down into this fine powder. And that becomes flour. And you bake that ultimately. But do you notice the process of how we get to bread is incredibly violent. And Jesus says, I'm the bread from heaven. Jesus, to be the bread of life, to be what would give us full satisfaction forever, to be life for us forever, must go through the process of being just pulverized. And do you know the gospel is the good news that God himself has come down from heaven, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and lived a sinless life, and then he was beaten beyond recognition. His beard was pulled from his face. He was stripped naked to be humiliated in in front of his own creation. They put a mockery of charges above him that said, King of the Jews. And they nailed him to a cross and lifted him up where he would suffer and die having been betrayed by his best friends. What is this? The crowds that once said, Hosanna, are screaming, crucify him. As like bread, he goes through this process. And then in his death, we are forgiven. That the sin and shame that we rightly should bear was placed on him. This is grace, that he would take our place on a cross. He would die the death that you and I deserve, and he would give us his righteousness. This is the bread of life that has to go through this process so that now we can eat and we can find life from this. 
Jesus, the bread of life. It's a gospel picture. The bread of life has been given. And this is why when you come to the Lord's Supper and we hear Jesus using the same language in the institution of the Lord's Supper that he used in this passage here, where he talks about his flesh and his blood being life for us. And so, again, the Lord's Supper is instituted. It's actually when they're celebrating Passover. This is the time of Passover again, and Jesus takes these elements where the Jews would remember this history of this is our salvation, this is how we're brought out of enslavement. This was our deliverance, that we eat this bread and we drink from this cup of blessing and we remember the night that he passed over. But what happened in the Passover? Something had to die. The blood that would cover was from life. And Jesus is saying, this bread is my body broken for you. And this cup, this cup of the new covenant, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And so taking that Passover tradition, he now creates this new ordinance for us, this new sacrament, where we come and we see the cup, we see the blood, we see the body, the bread, and we remember this is our salvation, that like the bread of life, bread must be destroyed. And Christ died so that we could have life forevermore so that we can be satisfied in him. So we come to that, outwardly seeing these symbols that they're meant to remind us and for us to proclaim his death until he comes, that this is my salvation, that he died. But he rose again and I'll have life forevermore with him. And so until he comes again, so the assurance of he is resurrected, he's coming back, I proclaim his death, that he was destroyed so that I would not be. But then he overcame. This is our life. And so we see these outward signs and symbols and then we internalize them. We eat them. And I think something that's supposed to signify his very existence, I put inside of me and I'm reminded of his nearness. This is my life. Just as food nourishes me, it is actually Christ who nourishes me. It is Christ who gives me life. He is with us, filling us. His presence is with us, doing the same basic functions of food. You eat food every day because you need it to live. It's fuel. If you stop eating, you start dying. You have to eat. It fuels your body. And so in the same way, Jesus is fuel for us and we will never run out. So Christian, can you keep going? You can. If you've given up, no, no. Feast on Christ. Eat. Be filled. But he's the only thing that will satisfy and he will fuel you. So feast and go. And then joy. The fact that God would make us these creatures that need to eat every day, that we need to eat to stay alive, and yet he would take this thing, this food that we would eat and say, let's put taste with it. They can enjoy it. What a grace of God that food would have taste and we could enjoy it. He is joy. We feast on him and we find joy in him. We have unending joy, so enjoy him. Rejoice and sing expressions of his goodness. Savor him. As the psalmist would say, taste and see that the Lord is good. Experience him because Jesus satisfies. Jesus satisfies. As we conclude, I want to be honest. We can say this all day long. Jesus satisfies. Jesus satisfies. And I believe it. And I want you to believe it. But I have to be honest and say, sometimes I don't experience it. Sometimes I feel so dissatisfied. And you do too. But what do we do in those moments where 
We know this to be true, that Jesus satisfies. He is the bread of life. And yet right now, I don't feel like that is true. What if my experience is not matching up with the truth that I'm claiming? And I have to ask in those moments, what are you feasting on? I have to ask myself, what am I feasting on? If he satisfies, am I actually feasting on him? Or have I supplemented that diet with a bunch of other things, like those chips, that are designed to give me this kind of spike of enjoyment, but then it trashes me and makes me think I need more of that. And so suddenly I'm in this pursuit of just shoveling as much of this other stuff into me as I can because it gives me this temporary feeling of like, yes, that's it, and I'm living for that. And yet over and over and over, I crash. And I realize, that's not it. This is sin. This is idolatry. What are we running after? What are we filling ourselves with that just actually is destroying us instead of giving us life? And if we take that out of the diet, if you've ever done any kind of a diet and you take out some of the junk food and you're consistent with it for any length of time at all, and then you go back to it and you're like, oh, that actually does not make me feel so great. We have to see him, feast on him, not indulge in the things that are not life-giving. This is not a sermon about what we literally eat. But spiritually, what are we feasting on? What are we finding our purpose, our meaning, our sense of identity and security in? What are the things we're chasing after? Sometimes I think that we have trivialized our sin and our needs for salvation so much that we fail to see the beauty of the gospel. If the gospel has become boring for us, then we have lost sight of how desperately we needed it. And we see that we should be the ones who are nailed to a cross. We should be the ones who are condemned for all of eternity. And yet he took our place. Oh, it's good news. It is truly good. So when we come to the table, we rightly, like Paul told the Corinthian church, we should examine ourselves we should see if there is some sin in our hearts and our lives that needs to be confessed and repent. Turn from that and turn to your Savior. Confess your sin. Do the work of believing in the one God sent, the bread from heaven. His name is Jesus. And then proclaim his death until he comes again because this is why we have life that is eternal. There's so many things that I want to just spend the whole day with you on in this chapter. But one last statement, one of my favorite statements Jesus ever made, in the midst of it, in verse 37. We can do this because of this promise. When Jesus said, everyone the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. So when I ask, will you come to Jesus? Are you hungry? Do you want to be satisfied? How will you come to Jesus? Because his promises, you come to him because the Father actually brought you to him. And everyone who comes to him, he will never cast out. Eternal life. So, <clears throat> looking at the table, plate after plate, scarfing them down, are you done yet? But instead of the server at the seafood restaurant, I like to imagine Jesus, the creator and sustainer of all things, who stepped into this and said, I came to serve. And now him, as a server here before me. And he looks down at the empty plates in front of me and says, are you done yet? I look back and say, no, 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 not at all. I'd like some more. And he smiles and he says, good. 
because there's so much more to give you. Do you know him like that? So skeptic, seeker, stumbling, or doubting saint, we believe this good news. And follower of Jesus, who do you need to share this good news with? Pray with me. Father in heaven, you're so good. Bread from heaven, Jesus, you have come to satisfy. You are so gentle and gracious with us, knowing that this would be a struggle. So give us faith to believe you, to be obedient to you, to do the work of believing in your name. We love you. Thank you that you came to die so that we would not have to face the penalty of our sin. And more so, so that we would be brought back into your presence, so that we could enjoy you, that we could be fueled by you, and then delight in you forevermore as you delight in us. It's just amazing. It is truly good news, God. Thank you so much for it. I pray desperately, would you sink that into the hearts of this church? Would you make us a people that is rejoicing constantly? regardless of circumstances, proclaiming your death because this is our hope, this is the hope of the world. So would you make us faithful in that to experience you, to enjoy you, to proclaim you. I love you and pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.